the National Archives podcast series, An Embarrassing Question, Opium, Britain and China, 1856-1860, to presented by Caroline Dawson. On the 8th of November, 1858, an agreement was signed between Britain and China respecting a tariff of duties on Chinese imports and exports. Rule 5 of the agreement legalised the importation of opium into China. With regard to this rule, the Earl of Elgin, who signed the agreement on behalf of Britain, stated in correspondence to the Foreign Office, I have thought long and deeply on this embarrassing question, and I am satisfied that the plan embodied in this rule offers a fairer promise of its satisfactory settlement than any other which has yet been propounded. In my talk today, I will explore how the events of the war that came to be known as the Second Opium War were related to this embarrassing question, the legalisation and legitimisation of the export of opium from British India to China. I will begin by briefly looking at the context of the Second Opium War and will then move on to outline the main events of the war. The second part of this talk will focus more specifically on the opium issue. I will look at those who benefited from the opium trade and its legalisation, focusing especially on British interests in the trade. And I will speak about those who objected to the trade on moral grounds. Ultimately, I will be exploring the questions, to what extent can we say that opium was the main cause of the second war between Britain and China? And why did this war come to be known as the Second Opium War? I refer in this talk to sources that we hold here at the National Archives, external electronic resources such as parliamentary papers online and British Library newspapers online, and to published works that I used for research. A quick note on Chinese names and place names. I'm afraid I don't speak Chinese, so I apologise in advance for any incorrect pronunciation of Chinese words. Also, for most of the slides in my presentation, I've used the old spellings of Chinese names and place names. In other words, I've used the spellings that can be found in documents created at the time of the war. These spellings most closely relate to the Wade-Giles system of transliteration for Chinese words, rather than the modern pinyin system. So, for example, Beijing will be referred to as Peking, and the Dagu forts will be referred to as the Taku forts. So, for example... I'll be referring to Canton and Macau, Hong Kong. There's a number of ports that were opened up after the First and Second Opium Wars up the coast. Treaties were signed in Nanking and also in, in Tianjin. And military operations I'll refer to happened around the Taku forts and also in Peking. So I'll begin with an exploration of the events of the Second Opium War and the legalisation of opium in China. I will first give a tiny bit of background to the war. There had been growing tensions between British and Chinese officials, the origins of which could be dated back to the First Opium War of 1839-42 and even to the failed McCartney mission of 1793. Lord McCartney was sent to China at a time when foreigners were allowed in the Portuguese colony of Macau or within a small restricted area of the port of Canton and that was only at certain times of the year. Part of his mission was therefore to extend the area in China which British traders could access and also to establish British diplomatic representation at Peking. The McCartney Embassy was well received by the Imperial Court as a tributary mission but the demands made by the Embassy were considered unthinkable and it returned home without achieving any of the desired concessions. 
the first opium war of 1839 to 42 was partly fueled by this desire to open up trade in China and establish better diplomatic relations. But the spark was the confinement by Commissioner Lin, Governor General of Henan and Hubei, of the foreign community at Canton, until 20,000 chests of opium were handed over to him. This imprisonment of British subjects at Canton caused outrage and war commenced between Britain and China, culminating in a British victory and the Nanking Treaty of 1842. The Treaty of Nanking achieved some of Britain's desired concessions. It included annexation of Hong Kong to the British, where the opium trade was legalised, the opening of five ports to British trade and residency, Canton, Shanghai, Fuchao, Amoy and Ningpo, and the placing of British and Chinese officials on an equal footing in diplomatic relations. Also, the Supplementary Treaty of the Bogue introduced the most favoured nation principle, so that any advantages granted to any other nation had to also be granted to Britain. Similar treaties were signed by China with France, America and Russia. The British government viewed the First War and the subsequent concessions as a, as a significant step towards pushing further into China. However, as Robert Bickers argues in The Scramble for China, the Chinese just saw the treaties as a modification to the existing systems dealing with relations with foreigners, and that this difference in interpretation is one of the reasons for the Second War. For the British, the treaties didn't do enough. They still couldn't communicate directly with the Imperial Court at Peking and instead had to go through the Imperial Commissioner at Canton. Also, they were still being walled out of the city of Canton, which the British argued was a contravention of the Treaty of Nanking. So the Imperial Court and high officials were keen to keep foreigners at a distance and the British were keen to open up trade with China and penetrate further into the country for the purposes of trade, exploration and missionary work. British officials were constantly angered by what they perceived as intolerable arrogance at the Manchu Qing court and the high Chinese officials who often refused to communicate with them directly and who, the British believed, perceived all foreigners to be barbarians. The spark that ignited these growing tensions was the Arrow Incident of 1856. In fact, one of the names sometimes given to the Second Opium War is the Arrow War. There are four men, which I think it's fair to say, are the main characters in this first part of the war. Harry Parks was the acting consul at Canton. Commissioner Yi was the governor of Kwangtung and imperial commissioner of Canton. Sir John Bowring was the British plenipotentiary at Hong Kong. And Michael Seymour was commander-in-chief at the China Station. The events of the Arrow incident are well documented in Foreign Office correspondence, including confidential print in TNA series FO881. Some of the confidential print for this period is also available in the library and on parliamentary papers online. The Arrow incident is also documented in Admiralty correspondence, such as in ADM1 and ADM125, which relates specifically to the China station. But to summarise the Arrow incident very briefly, Chinese officials have marched onto a launcher, which is a type of sailing vessel, called the Arrow. It was registered in Hong Kong and so was in principle British, but it had Chinese rigging and a Chinese crew and a British captain. Apparently the British flag was torn down and the Chinese crew were arrested as a few of them were suspected to be pirates or associated with pirates. Harry Parks and John Bowring were outraged by this slight against the British flag, 
Demands were made of Commissioner Yi, a return of the seized men to the Arrow in the presence of Parks, an apology and an assurance that in future the British flag would be respected. Yi didn't fully meet these demands and refused to apologise. Threats were made by Parks and Bowring, but Yi wouldn't budge. Military operations against Canton, led by Michael Seymour, commenced and escalated. By December 1856, the foreign factories at Canton had been destroyed and much of the surrounding suburbs. A stalemate was reached as the British did not have the forces to take Canton fully. Now, by 1856, telegraphic communications had not been established between Britain and China, so these decisions to make these threats and commence military operations had been made before the Foreign Office in London and so before central government had got wind of it. And so, at this time, there was a gap of about a month and a half to two months between John Bowring writing a dispatch from Hong Kong and the Foreign Office in London receiving it. For example, by the time the Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, the Earl of Clarendon, was responding in December to Bowring's dispatches of the 13th and 15th of October, agreeing that the Chinese authorities did act in contravention of treaty and approving his intention to seize and hold one of the Chinese imperial junks. British naval and military forces had already destroyed the forts around Canton, breached the walls of the city and had entered it. In fact, as early as the 30th of October, a month before the Foreign Office knew what was going on, Seymour had communicated to Yi that the lives and property of the entire city population are at my mercy and could be destroyed by me at any moment that any event might impose upon me so sad a necessity. The prevention of any such necessity is entirely in the hands of Your Excellency. I have constrained to move onward, proceeding from one step to a farther, by the pertinacity and discourtesy with which Your Excellency has persisted in evading the just and simple claims advanced by us in the first instance. This aggressiveness and self-righteousness, shared really by all four of these men, although most effectively channelled into destruction by the British, was clear in the published correspondence and was not well received back in Britain. An intensive parliamentary debate ensued on the matter in March 1857 over what seemed to many to be an unjustifiably violent reaction to an incident so small as that of the Arrow. The debates can be found in parliamentary papers online. In a House of Commons debate of March the 3rd, 1857, Mr Thomas Milner Gibson, former Vice President of the Board of Trade and MP for Manchester, informed of a memorial which had been produced at a public meeting in Manchester, which, and I quote, conveyed to Her Majesty the feelings of shame and indignation with which they had learned the news of the destruction by the British forces of innocent life at Canton, and their belief, founded on the published evidence, that the hostile acts committed by Admiral Seymour with the concurrence of Sir John Bowring and Mr Parks could not be justified on the plea of necessity and were worthy of the heaviest censure. They observed that Her Majesty's prerogative to declare war had been usurped by the before-mentioned servants of the Crown and they implored that they might be recalled in order that a searching inquiry should be made into their conduct. He went on to say that it appeared to him it was not correct to identify the opinion of a small limited body of gentlemen connected with the opium and tea trade in China with the opinion of the great general mercantile community of England. Despite these controversies, Palmerston's government survived and were voted in to serve another term. 
Although the policy towards China was taken out of the hands of Bowring and placed into those of James Bruce, the 8th Earl of Elgin, known as and referred to in correspondence as Lord Elgin or Just Elgin. Parks and Seymour, on the other hand, continued to be closely involved with China policy. It was clear from the instructions that were issued to the Earl of Elgin by the Earl of Clarendon in April 1857 that the situation which had been created by Bowring, Parks and Seymour provided a perfect opportunity to address some of the ongoing frustrations in the relations between Britain and China and a good way to improve trade. The purpose of Elgin's mission would be to reinforce the articles of the Nanking Treaty and also to build on this treaty and attain more concessions for Britain. The demands that Elgin was instructed to make included reparation and compensation for injuries and losses sustained in the recent disturbances, a revision of the treaties with China with a view to improving commerce, and agreement of the Chinese government for residency of the British minister at Peking. This was something that the Chinese government would be very reluctant to allow as the imperial court was situated at Peking and foreigners weren't allowed near it. Elgin was also instructed to use coercive measures if some of the demands were not agreed to. A further dispatch of the same day outlined some other desirables with regard to Elgin's negotiations, including on opium. Clarendon instructed, ascertain whether the government of China would revoke its prohibition of the opium trade, which the high officers of the Chinese government never practically enforce. He goes on, there would be obvious advantages in placing the trade upon a legal footing by the imposition of a duty instead of being carried on in the present regular manner. All the correspondence relating to Elgin's mission in China between April 1857 and May 1859 was printed and again is available in confidential print in FO881, in the library and on parliamentary papers online. The second phase of the war was characterised by further military operations in Canton and culminated in the signing of the Treaty of Tianjin and the Shanghai Tariff Conference which legalised opium in China. By the time Elgin arrived in China in the autumn of 1857, he had the full support of his French colleague, Baron Gross, in continuing military operations against China. The reason the French gave for joining forces with the British was to avenge the execution of a French missionary at the hands of Chinese officials in February 1856. But of course, they were set to gain from a suppression of China and a subsequent spread of free trade. America and Russia would also benefit from a British and French victory, but they were not prepared to offer military assistance. Unfortunately for Elgin, he was unable to get started with his mission straight away, as the required military forces were occupied with the Indian mutiny. It wasn't until the end of 1857 that the British and French were able to resume operations against China, which they did after an ultimatum mission to Commissioner Yi was just met with an argument as to its unreasonableness. By January 1858, the Allied forces had occupied Canton. Seymour reported little bloodshed on the British side. The Allies appointed a new Chinese commissioner, P. Kuei, who would govern with a commission led by Harry Parks, and they had shipped Commissioner Yi to Calcutta, where a few years later he died in captivity. The Treaty of Tianjin, or its official name and as it's described in our catalogue, the Treaty of Peace and Friendship Commerce, was signed on the 26th of June 1858, following some altercations between Elgin and the Chinese government 
over the credentials of the Chinese officials that had been deputed to negotiate it. In April 1858, once the British and French had destroyed the Taku forts and were ready to attack Peking, the Chinese emperor appointed two higher-ranking officials to commence discussions for the treaties. The Treaty of Tianjin was based on the provisions in Elgin's mission instructions. It included renewal of the Treaty of Nanking, which was signed at the end of the First Opium War, plus Article 9 provided for freedom of travel for British subjects to all parts of the Chinese interior under passports issued by British consuls. Article 11 provided the opening of more ports to foreigners, including Nuchuang, Swatow, and ports at Henan and Formosa. Article 51 forbade Chinese officials from ever referring to the British as Yi in any official documents, which was translated by British officials as meaning barbarian, and so a signifier of inequality in diplomatic relations. It was agreed that an indemnity would be paid by China to cover losses sustained by British subjects at Canton and to cover the cost of the military expedition. Similar treaties were also signed by France, America and Russia, although Russia managed to also annex vast tracts of land in Manchuria and Vladivostok was established. This move would feed into British paranoia about Russia's intentions regarding Central Asia. Although opium was not mentioned at all in the Tientsin Treaty, it did provide for the tariff conference which I mentioned at the beginning of this talk. It was held in Shanghai in November 1858 and one of its outcomes was the legalisation of opium as well as other contraband commodities such as grains, sulphur, brimstone and saltpetre. Opium would be sold freely by British merchants at the treaty ports but it would be carried into the interior by Chinese merchants only. Another notable concern of the Shanghai Tariff Conference was the establishment of a uniform system for the collection of duties at the treaty ports, whereby the Chinese government would select a British subject to aid in the administration of customs revenue, the prevention of smuggling and other activities at the ports. This provision, embodied in Rule 10 of the agreement, which followed the conference, was the basis for the expansion of the Chinese Maritime Customs Service, of which Robert Hart was Inspector General after 1863. Article 3 of the Treaty of Tientsin had stated that the British minister could reside permanently at Peking. As expected, this provision was strongly resisted by the Imperial Court. Elgin was willing to negotiate regarding this provision as long as the ratification of the treaty occurred without any setbacks. Of course, the ratification of the treaty didn't occur without any setbacks, which is why the war ended in 1860 and not in 1858. In June 1859, when Elgin's brother, Frederick Bruce, arrived with the French ambassador, Monsieur de Bourboulon, at the Paiho River in front of the Taku forts, they were asked by the Chinese guarding the fort to land further north at Beitang and proceed from there. As Bruce was determined to make no compromises, he refused to do this and when the British gunboats moved closer to the forts, they were fired on by Chinese guns. Four ships were sunk, and there were over 400 British casualties. The ADM 101 Surgeon's Journals, which have been catalogued in great detail, give lots of information on the Royal Naval personnel who were injured and or died during this clash. This entry is for Frederick Dyer, who was a 22-year-old able seaman on board the Chesapeake. Thanks to my colleague Colin for bringing this to my attention. The surgeon writes that Dyer was the first man struck in the engagement. 
In the act of hoisting the signal, his right arm was carried away by a round shot, and his skull was also injured. He was brought on board the Coromandel within half an hour, but he was then insensible and pulseless, his features pale and contracted and bedewed with cold perspiration, in short, at the point of death. About 4pm, he breathed his last. I think this document gives us an example of the variety of records the National Archives holds relating to the war, ranging from general political correspondence to accounts of real people involved. In this particular case, a young man coming to his end in one of the bloody clashes of the war. The Takufal incident was an unexpected victory for the Imperial Court, who then decided to rescind key elements of the treaty, and so war was resumed. Over the following year, British and French forces heavily harmed themselves, and in June 1860, they successfully broke through the Taku forts and marched on Peking. Further military and verbal clashes occurred between the Allied forces and the Imperial forces over the following months. It was on the same day that these actions took place that 38 Allied prisoners were taken by the Qing court, including Harry Parks, and maltreated and neglected to the extent that 19 were returned dead and the others in a serious condition. This led to Elgin's decision to directly punish the court by burning the Emperor's summer palace to the ground. This was a somewhat unexpected decision from Elgin. Correspondence in the Lord John Russell papers in PRO 3022 give us some clues as to his thought process. Elgin was writing to the Foreign Secretary, Lord Russell, on a regular basis about how the war in China was proceeding. On the 9th of October, 1860, before the fate of the prisoners was known, Elgin had written to Russell from Peking that, I'm a little afraid of the effect which the proceedings of the French at the Emperor's Summer Palace may produce upon him. The wanton destruction of property which has taken place there is something frightful to contemplate, and unless he be capable of great self-control, I should not much like to be a prisoner within his reach when he hears of it. I'd just like to point out at this point that it wasn't only the French forces that were involved in running riot and looting in the Emperor's Summer Palace. British forces were also involved. Loot was distributed according to rank among the British forces and, and some pieces were even set aside for Queen Victoria. If you're interested in this particular aspect of the war, then uh, James Hevier gives a very detailed account of the looting of the Summer Palace and the distribution and auctioning off of prize in his English Lessons, The Pedagogy of Imperialism in 19th Century China. So, five days after his letter to Russell on the 14th of October, once the fate of the prisoners was known, Elgin wrote again to Russell complaining of the short time being allowed for negotiations by the generals. It is an atrocious crime, and if it not be visited with condign punishment, the effect on our relations with China may be most serious. With our murdered friends unaccounted for and unavenged and treaties to modify, sign and ratify, they, meaning the generals, allow me 12 days to complete all this. On the 27th of October, Elgin wrote to Russell, justifying his decision to burn down the Summer Palace. The burning of the palace was not a proceeding to my taste, but it was a necessary act and has proved, I think, quite successful in its results. For once, I think the emperor will know the truth. I should have preferred crushing the Chinese army, which is still in this neighbourhood. But as we go to work, we might have followed them round the walls of Peking till doomsday without catching them. 
Besides which, it may be observed that this army is the last protection to this dynasty. Following this act of destruction, the Treaty of Tientsin was ratified and in addition the Convention of Peking was signed, described in our catalogue as Convention Peace Indemnity Session of Kowloon Commerce. It included an additional indemnity, an apology for the Taku Fort incident, the right to establish an embassy at Peking, the opening of Tientsin to trade, the cession of part of Kowloon to Britain, which extended their existing concession of Hong Kong, and legalisation of Chinese emigration. And so this war, sparked by the ripping down of the British colours by the Chinese officials on the Arrow, ended with this act of vandalism, the destruction of the Emperor's Summer Palace by the British. British officials justified their acts of violence during this war in various ways, including to avenge outrages committed against them, to teach the Manchu court a lesson for the arrogance and haughtiness which British officials so often ranted about in correspondence, but also to open up China to trade, to force open more treaty ports and increase the Chinese market, who, it was assumed, would be keen to buy up the British manufacturers, which it had shown too little interest in before. The legalisation of opium was discussed in correspondence, but it certainly wasn't put forward as a reason to war with China. In fact, the legalisation of opium was put through at the Shanghai Tariff Conference with little resistance from the Chinese. This was probably partly due to the imperial court being much too preoccupied with the raging Taiping Rebellion to worry too much about this particular British demand. But now I want to move on to what British and Chinese interests were in the opium trade and why the Second Opium War came to be known as such. When it came to the business of opium, the beneficiaries ranged from the British Treasury, British, American and Chinese merchants, as well as merchants of other nations, and Chinese proprietors. This memorandum of January 1858, from Consul Robinson at Shanghai to Elgin, entitled Our Present Relations with China, includes the issue of opium and the necessity for Britain of it being legalised. Robertson justifies the legalisation of opium on economic grounds. There can be but one opinion as to its usefulness as an article of import. Simply, the Chinese will take nothing from us in the form of manufactured goods or raw produce as a set-off against their tea and silk. It is difficult, therefore, to see on what grounds, either political or social, opium is to be vetoed. Perhaps those who would banish it as an evil can furnish a substitute. He provides arguments against those that object on moral grounds. Opium is a want which they, meaning the Chinese, have themselves created. Our manufacturers are not a want, but one we wish to create. On what grounds, therefore, can we say, you shall have the, take the one, but you must not the other? It is urged also that opium involves a question of morality. Undoubtedly it does, and so do spirits and tobacco in Europe. In fact, the abuse of any article of consumption becomes a vice. The unwritten laws of society come into operation and pass a social sentence on the drunkard, more terrible in its effects than any statute law could inflict. So the British Treasury gains as large amounts of the opium consumed in China was exported from British India. The Treasury needed China to import Indian opium to set against the large amounts of tea, silk and ceramics being imported into Britain from China. 
Although many foreign countries were involved in the transportation and sale of opium to China, it was mainly British and American vessels that carried out this trade, and so they were the biggest beneficiaries among foreign merchants. Jardine Matheson & Company is one of the best-known British companies that traded in opium. It's a huge multinational conglomerate still in existence today, but even at the time it was a very successful and expanding company. Large British merchant companies like Jardine Matheson had a significant amount of lobbying power, and so a certain amount of influence on government policy. Chinese merchants involved in the open trade were of course also beneficiaries. Even after legalisation of the drug, only they could carry out the trade on mainland China, and so foreigners could only partake in opium profits until it reached the ports. China also had a thriving domestic trade. Opium poppies were cultivated in many parts of China, and as demand increased, the domestic supplies were increasingly required. For the imperial treasury, opium was a source of an imbalance of payments, as silver flowed out the coffers to pay for the increasing import of the foreign product. However, it did benefit from the import duties, which could be collected more effectively after legalisation, and it benefited from other taxes on its internal cultivation, transportation and sale. In his memorandum, Consul Robinson comments, if the Chinese government would drop this underhand system and enter it in the tariff at a duty of 20 taels per chest, at Shanghai alone, taking last year's return of 34,500 chests, the sum of 690,000 taels would have gone to the imperial treasury. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to find what the equivalent of 690,000 taels was in pounds sterling, but I get the impression it was a lot. The proprietors of leisure industries were also beneficiaries of the opium trade. Opium could be purchased and consumed at home, but it was often consumed in tea houses, brothels and restaurants. Yang Wenzheng, in his The Social Life of Opium in China, explains that it was often women who prepared opium for its use, including servants and prostitutes. And so for these women, opium was a means to support themselves and their families. But opium was a double-edged sword, for women, for the Chinese, and to a certain extent for the British government. As Zheng points out, although opium could provide a means for women to make a living, many women were forced into such work out of filial piety to feed their father's or husband's opium addiction. It was also known for poor families to sell their girls in order to feed their opium habit, and became a popular method through overdose for women who wanted to end their lives. According to Zheng, by the time of the Second Opium War, opium was used not only by the imperial court and high officials, but also the peasantry and was a fully established part of Chinese culture. Addiction caused much suffering, destroyed families and caused military weakness when soldiers became addicted to the drug. The British government was not only lobbied by British merchants to improve their trade prospects with China, which included in the sale of opium, it was also lobbied by anti-opium groups, who often justified their position on the basis of Christian morality. Christian missionaries in China, for example, often experienced firsthand the negative effects opium use could have on individuals and families. This lobbying seemed to proliferate a couple of decades after the end of the Second War with China. So unfortunately, I was unable to find any letters to the Foreign Office from anti-opiumists until this one in 1890. 
This letter was received from Arthur Peace, MP for Whitby and Chairman of the Society for the Suppression of the Opium Trade. It communicates a resolution adopted by the Society on the 3rd of June 1890. It was agreed that in view of the widespread misery and demoralisation caused by opium smoking throughout the Chinese Empire, the Dutch East Indies and other parts of the Eastern Hemisphere, and in consideration of the serious hindrance to missionary work caused by the British connection with the opium trade, this meeting deems the cultivation of the poppy in Bengal by government licence and under the stimulus of government advances without interest, the preparation of opium in government factories expressly to gratify the appetites of those who indulge in this vicious habit and sale by auction of the opium so prepared, to be a mode of raising revenue contrary to the elementary principles of morality and utterly inconsistent with the gospel of Christ. This meeting, therefore, calls upon Parliament no longer to permit the continuance of this evil system. These moral objections to the opium trade were the basis for Elgin's embarrassment over the opium question. If I go back to the quote I gave at the beginning of this talk and expand it, we can see the justification Elgin gave for its legalisation. It is hoped that by this arrangement, on the one hand, a term will be put to the scandals and irregularities to which a contraband trade at the ports necessarily gives birth, and on the other, that occasion will not be furnished for the still greater scandals and irregularities which would inevitably arise if foreigners were entitled under the sanction of treaties to force this article into all districts of the Chinese interior. I have thought long and deeply on this embarrassing question and I am satisfied that the plan embodied in this rule offers a fairer promise of its satisfactory settlement than any other which has yet been propounded. So the legalisation of the importation of opium into China was justified by Elgin on the grounds that the trade was currently being carried out in a way that was more immoral than it would be if it was legalised. In his view, legalising the trade would end the scandalous smuggling trade that existed before and would allow proper controls to be put in place. We also saw from Consul Robinson's letter that the opium trade was considered necessary to ensure a favourable balance of payments for Britain as far as he was concerned, it wasn't the fault of the British that the Chinese had no interest in British manufacturers. Robertson's and Elgin's comments show us that the opium question was an important one for the British government for multiple reasons. Even so, there isn't much evidence to suggest that the issue was the central cause of the war of Britain and France against China. So why did it come to be known as the Second Opium War? I'm sure there are conflicting opinions as to the answer to this question, and I have to admit I haven't extensively researched it. But I have found some interesting quotes by searching on the terms Second Opium War and First Opium War on parliamentary papers online, and uh, also British Library newspapers online, both of which can be accessed here in the reading rooms. I think the name Second Opium War was probably popularised by the anti-opium groups in Britain, which were mainly Christian groups and whose lobbying power, it seemed, grew stronger in the late 19th century. Although the so-called First Opium War was popularly referred to as an Opium War at the time, it seems the term Second Opium War was not commonly used until at least around 1880. The earliest use of the term Second Opium War I found was in an article published in the Morning Chronicle in January 1859 through British Library newspapers online. 
The article was reporting a meeting at the Friends Meeting House where Mr Thomas Reynolds delivered a lecture on the combined topics of India, Opium and China. The article states that Mr Reynolds entered into an historical account of what he termed the First Opium War and then alluded to the recent operations in China which he alleged constituted a Second Opium War. So you can see from this quote that the journalist views the opinions of Mr Reynolds to be an oddity and so at the time of the war it was not popularly perceived to be a Second Opium War or as a continuance of the First Opium War of 1839-42. The first report of the Royal Commission on Opium was published in 1894 and is available on parliamentary papers online. Sir James Lyle, who was retired from the position of Lieutenant Governor of the Punjab by the time of the Commission, stated, The question has often been put to me whether I thought the opium smuggling had made us accountable for our First Opium War, and I would like to give my view about that. The war was occasioned by two factors. One was the intolerable insolence of the Chinese in refusing to have intercourse with the representatives of England on terms of equality, and the other was our habit of smuggling. And as between the two, I say that the persistent smuggling of England was a greater crime against humanity and against God than the abominable arrogance of the Chinese. Later in the same report, Arthur P. stated... I have only further to say, I am requested to state that the Secretary and the previous Secretary of the Anti-Opium Society have never used the term Second Opium War. It is a term that has been used by others, it is not a term that has been adopted by them. And Sir Thomas Wade replied, it has been used by anti-opiumists. So this above quote suggests that even by 1894, the term Second Opium War was not an uncontroversial one and had probably not been widely accepted as a suitable name for the war. However, the first quote from Lyle suggests there was possibly a growing perception that the second war between Britain and China was a continuance of the first war, which was known as the Opium War. So I'll conclude that the British and French motives for this second war with China were based on revenge, imperialism and free trade. Opium was an important issue for the British and they were keen to continue exporting the Indian product to China, but this issue did not lie at the heart of the war. However, a couple of decades or so after the war, the anti-opium movement in Britain grew and the perception grew that the Second War was a continuance of the first, uncontroversially known as the Opium War. Eventually, the events of 1856 to 1860 between Britain, France and China became properly known as the Second Opium War. A quick tip on finding records in our catalogue, Discovery. In order to identify documents in the catalogue for a particular period of time, it's useful to become familiar with the type of language and spellings used in official government records created at the time, because the catalogue descriptions will reflect that language. However, spellings of Chinese words in 19th and early 20th century documents vary, so when searching on Discovery, it's a good idea to try variant spellings of words and use wildcards in your keyword searches. As with all online searches, keep your initial search as simple as possible and add further information if necessary. Thank you. This talk was recorded on the 28th of February 2013 at the National Archives, Q. This podcast is copyrighted to the National Archives. All rights reserved.